Good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a good Sunday so far. Um, welcome back to uh, the auditorium class as we look over the book of Esther. Um, so far, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, it's been a great study. Uh, it's, it's fun to look at. Uh, I consider Esther a pretty unique book, um, and I'm, I'm sure I've communicated that with you all. Uh, and it's, it's fun to study and to look over um, a book like Esther. Um, today we'll be in chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 isn't too long. I mean, none of these chapters are too long, and 5 is pretty straightforward, so maybe... Maybe we'll go into a little bit of, of six, but but we'll see how the time goes. Um, let's start with reading the chapter. Can someone please read from chapter five, verse one through verse eight, please? And it happened when the king saw found favor in the sight of and can someone please finish out the chapter? Okay, so that is chapter 5 of Esther's. Um, as you can see, the plot is thickening, and, uh, and, and we're seeing the development of the narrative here. Um, just to review real quick... Um, Obviously, we know what happened in uh, the first like two chapters: uh, the king's banquets, Esther or Queen Bashti being uh, basically kind of <laughs> excommunicated. She's not the queen anymore, and then Esther being chosen because she wins the favor uh, of everyone who uh, who sees her, um, including the king, and Mordecai. Uh, saving the king from an assassination plot of uh, his two eunuchs. Um, and then in chapter 3, Haman coming into play. Uh, Haman, uh, the uh, Agagite, um, who we have talked about, uh, is uh, they have like a historical feud, the Agagites and the um, well, the Jewish people, the Israelites, but more specifically, uh, or more significantly, um, uh, Mordecai being a uh, of the uh, tribe of Benjamin. Or tribe of Benjamin. Um, we talked about how uh, in the tribe of Benjamin, right, there was King Saul, the first king of Israel, and one of the things that he failed to do was uh, kill King Agag and. Uh, and exterminate the Amalekites as uh, God had ordained him. And that became a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Right? Um, so all of these things play into that. And, uh, and Haman, when uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, uh, as it was ordered to all the king's officials... Um, that Haman be held in honor in such a way uh, for everyone to bow down to him in his presence. 
Mordecai obviously doesn't do that, right? Because of obvious reasons. He is a Jew. He, and that's not just an ethnicity thing. That's not a just an identity of um, nationality or ethnicity. That's his religious identity, his spiritual identity. That means that he serves God, and that just by that identity itself, we get this. Uh, this picture of who he is in terms of a Jewish person and what his values are and what his um, priorities are, his priority being God. And when his priority is God, um, and that is who he serves, he does not bow down to man, right? So he makes those decisions. And because of that, um, the result is that Haman decides to exterminate all the Jews. And he enacts this plot by going to the king, and uh, and the king Hazarus he says, "All right, you know, you, you promised to put money into the treasury. Uh, if I let you do this, uh, so why don't you go ahead and do it?" And he picks a date, uh, or he does. He doesn't just pick a date. He does so by uh, casting lots, right? The pur, which will later become the foundation for the feast of Purim. Um, and Haman succeeds in kind of getting the plan rolling to uh, exterminate all the Jews in the provinces and all this, uh, the cities of the empire of uh, Persia. And the king and uh, Haman, they celebrate, they drink, they get drunk and all that, while uh, the city is thrown into turmoil. Everyone's confused. Um, what's going on? And then in four, we see Mordecai mourning right, for his people, um, and he is he is destitute. And one of the things that we talked about, remember, is that uh, Esther, though it doesn't have the name of God specifically and explicitly mentioned in the text, we can find God in various different ways. God. God's presence is woven into the text, even though the author decided not to name God or specifically say God did this or God said this. Uh, the author weaves uh, God in the choices that the characters make, uh, in the identity that they find themselves in, and many other things. Um, we're going to look at, uh, as we go uh forward into the latter half of Esther, we're going to see more of the providence um, that that Esther is defined by, the book of Esther is defined by, and how that plays into um, the presence of God uh, in the book. But anyway, in 4, we see Mordecai mourning, putting sackcloth on and putting ash on his, on his head and praying and fasting. And Esther asks him why, and he says, well, here's what happened. We're all going to die because Haman uh, just convinced the king to exterminate all the Jews in the province. So this is a great, um, well, one, it's, it's a very uh, distinct, this, this action that Mordecai is doing with the sackcloth and ash and, and fasting. These are, uh, these are not just spontaneous actions. He didn't just feel like doing that because he was sad. No, this is something that is uh, 
definitive of the Jewish people when they are mourning, when they are uh, begging for forgiveness right, to God because of their own wrongdoing, or when they are destitute and when they are desperate and when they are uh, in times of trouble, they do this. Right? So this is his Mordecai's Jewishness coming out right, in his reaction to this bad news. Um, and also you can read that uh, all of the Jews throughout the provinces and uh, throughout the empire of Persia, they were doing this. Um, so once again, we see, we see God and we see the identity of the Jews uh, through these things. But nevertheless, um, Mordecai uh, communicates to Esther. Uh, remember, he can't physically approach Esther right now. She is in the, the, the court of the king's harem, right? And obviously, Mordecai cannot go into such place. Um, he does not have the right to, even though he is a, uh, a government official. Um, you know, as he had been kind of checking up on Esther from a distance, um, uh, communicating between uh, the, uh, between the distance with uh, other officials like eunuchs who had access to um, the court of the harem, uh, and in the same way, uh, Mordecai communicates to Esther in chapter four, and they begin talking about a plan to save the Jews, and this plan is for Esther to go into the king's presence and to ask him to help. Uh, finally revealing her uh, identity. Remember, Esther was advised to, to hide her identity. Um, it is not yet known to the king that she is of the Jewish people, right? Otherwise, I don't think he would have uh, <laughs> made the uh, uh, proclamation or the edict to exterminate the Jews when, uh, if he knew that his queen, his beloved queen, was one of those uh, people. So, um, for her to finally, you know, make herself known uh, of her true identity uh, as a Jewish person, um, but more importantly, to go into the king's presence, right? That was the significant part of it, because if you remember, Queen Vashti uh, failed to uh, do as the king ordered, and the king is very prideful. The king is very particular, and it is the law of the land at the time that if you were to go into the king's presence, if you were to go into the king's inner courts without him summoning you first, right, that it would mean certain death. Um, unless we read in, uh, let's see, verse 11, or sorry, verse, yeah, verse 11 of chapter 4, Esther points out, unless if the king holds out his golden scepter for you to touch, uh, you will surely be put to death, right? And the reply of Mordecai to this is was the meat of last week's um, lesson, I guess, on, on Esther. Mordecai tells her that uh, you shouldn't think that you'll be saved just because you're in the king, you're a queen, and you're in the king's presence and all of that. Uh, any more than the Jews who will be exterminated because of this uh, because of this bad news, right? And 
if Esther keeps silence during this, if she doesn't step up, takes responsibility for the role that she is playing right now, as she is in the proximity to authority and power, she has the ability to go into the king's courts and ask the king for a favor, though it is still dangerous potentially. She has at least the ability to even approach the king. Some of these other people could not even, I mean, they didn't, they didn't see the king. The average Joe of, of the Persian Empire would not have been able to even look at the king, right, let alone approach him in his inner courts. Esther has that ability. So Mordecai says, if you don't take responsibility here, if you don't take upon yourself right, this responsibility that you have found, though you didn't ask for it, you are in that position to be able to do that. So if you don't do what is right in this situation, even if it's hard, God will raise someone else. God will find a way for his will to be done. But you and your household, right, it'll be destroyed. Uh, it's a bit harsh. <laughs> the language is a little bit harsh. But it is the truth nonetheless. Right? If we... For example, find ourselves in situations where we can serve God and yet we choose not to. God's will will be done, whether or not we choose to be a part of his plan. However, if you go against God, then you know the outcome is pretty obvious. Right? So that gets us to chapter 5. That was a pretty lengthy um, <laughs> uh, review. I didn't mean that to be so long. But um, we're kind of getting into like the turning point of the story. In chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 is kind of the the pivot point of the whole story. Um, If you remember the the outline that I gave you in the the short handout uh, when I passed it out to you in the, I think, like the first week, or no, the second week, um, you can see how the the plot, the narrative plays out. And with the pivot point in the middle, the plot mirrors, right? Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. Uh, but as we get into kind of like the, the important parts of, in terms of the narrative, I just thought it would be good to uh, remind ourselves what has, how the story has been going uh, thus far. So... The main points of chapter 5 are in the first section where Esther uh, goes into the king's presence in in his inner courts uh, and she is saved by the golden scepter. And then in the second part when Haman uh, once again sees Mordecai not bow down, but not only not bow down, but he is bold in in, in in doing so. He is confident and he is not wavering and this angers Haman. And he goes back home and, and he, you know, talks about all his deeds and whatever, his riches to his family and his family or his wife. Um, and uh, they advise him to build a, a gallow for, hang, or, uh, for Mordecai to be hanged on. So those are the two big parts of chapter 5. In the first section, we can see that uh, Esther wins the favor of or Ezra wins favor in the king's sight. In chapter 5, verse 2, it reads, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. 
a big sigh of relief, right? <laughs> In chapter 4, uh, it was a big deal. Esther was fearful, right? She was very afraid because uh, for her to go into the king's inner court meant certain death unless he held out his golden scepter to save her, which he does in this case. So she is saved. Um, I like the story of Esther because uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't leave you wondering. It doesn't, you know, draw it out. It just, it's just boom, boom, boom. You know, Esther was afraid. She goes into the king's court and the king holds out a scepter. She's saved. And now she is in the position to, uh, the ball is in her court, so to speak, right? Uh, and she is now is in the position to make the request to reconsider the, the edict that was passed out that says uh, on this day the Jews can be eliminated. Um, so, again, we're kind of already seeing the, the narrative shift, right? Uh, we're, you can tell we're approaching a pivot point, a turning point in the story where um, these people have had right to be you know, afraid of Haman, but now with Esther, the queen, winning the favor of her king and now in the position to be able to ask for that favor, um, you can see that they're on the road to victory. So one thing that I think, uh, or as I was studying, that really applies to us um, in this section about Esther winning the favor in king's sight. Right. If you remember, one of the, the qualities of Esther that we highlighted back in chapter 2 was her humility and her meekness and, and her character that was, uh, you know, she wasn't a, a, a doormat or anything. She didn't let people, you know, step all over her, I don't think. But she was a good person, right? And she was upright. Um, she wasn't haughty. She wasn't uh, overly ambitious or anything like that. She just did her thing, right, and made the right choices. And yet, even though she didn't try to be, you know, flashy and, and you know, ambitious uh, with that power struggle, um, she still got the attention because she was just a good person. And, and, and that wasn't just her outer beauty. It was her inner beauty that really sold her character to other people. And she won the favor of everyone who knew her, including the king, which, by the way, allowed her to be, become the queen. Right? So, uh, uh, her, her character was not of timidity, but of gentleness, right? That was not like the others uh, who were frantic with, you know, selfishness. Um, and I think, you know, in the beginning of Esther, we can see that there were the, the culture here, right, where the Jews find themselves in, in the Persian Empire. It, it is one of very secular uh, values, uh, one that is defined by selfishness, ambition, power, and the struggle for all these things, material things, right? So she was kind of like the the going against the grain kind of that uh, kind of person in that. So so is Mordecai. So this and her other peaceful characteristics allowed her to win the favor of many, right? And it was just not because she was a pretty gal, right? It was because she was a good, upstanding, righteous person. Um, being a uh, peacemaker, right? Someone who is convicted, who has values, who is bold in such things, and yet is still agreeable and, and approachable, if you will, 
That's not a, an insignificant characteristic. Uh, in fact, it's something that the Bible highlights really a lot, especially you know, if you look throughout all the Bible, right, all the heroes of faith, you know, you can say that they were peacemakers and all that kind of stuff, but especially in the New Testament too, right, which is, I, I guess you can say is more applicable to us. Um, peacemaker, being a peacemaker and having this characteristic of peace and having good favor with the people around you, it's not just an optional thing. It's not just a, uh, oh, you know, if you, if you have time to do that, do that. No, it's, it is a characteristic that we're called to have. Paul often talks about being peaceful. In fact, in a lot of his greetings, he will say, uh, grace and peace, right, be with you. Now, that's not to say, you know, that wasn't a common, uh, greeting of his day, but, um, you can really tell that he emphasizes peace because throughout a, a lot of his epistles, right, Paul talks about being in good favor with the community around them. Right? He calls the people, these churches, the early uh, first century churches, these new Christians who have been converted uh, into Christianity, he tells them the culture around you is hostile. The culture around you is different. They live by a different standard. You are called to a higher one. But that doesn't mean you need to be belligerent. That doesn't mean you need to uh, condemn people. That doesn't mean that you need to have good favor with the people around you, even if the culture around you is hostile. Hostile, right? So he talks about you know having a good reputation with the community in Romans chapter twelve eighteen. I think is the most you know definitive kind of uh, verse for this idea. If possible, if it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? Jesus prayed that God not take his apostles, his disciples, out of the world in his priestly prayer, high priestly prayer, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus did not wish for his disciples to be magically teleported outside into a bubble of sorts, outside of this hostile culture. No, he wanted them to be among the people, within the communities, within those hostile cultures, and yet without sin, and yet without uh, stooping down to their levels and, and living by their standards. He wanted them to live by his standards, of course, but not by ostracizing themselves out of the culture. Right? He wanted them to have a good reputation among the people. So there's this perpetual idea in the Bible that tells us that we ought not to be belligerent, uh, quarrelsome. That's another word that Paul uses a lot right, in his epistles. But peaceful, right? peacemakers. And the main reason being that doing so, we will pave the roads for the kingdom to spread. Right? God doesn't want us to just be peacemakers just for the sake of being peacemakers. Uh, that is a good quality. I hope that we are all peacemakers. But we are peacemakers for a greater good, for a greater goal, and that is for us to be able to spread the kingdom of heaven, right? to tell the good news to other people. How can we do that if everyone hates us? Right? Now, that's not to say you know, the world hated Jesus first, 
And we shouldn't be shocked when people don't like us for what we believe in. Right? That's, that, is, that is the reality. Uh, that's the, just the reality of this world. But nevertheless, it is possible for us to live peaceably. And that's not just to say that we should be uh, floor mats for people to step all over. We shouldn't be naive, right? But as we live our Christian lives, and as we build reputation within our communities, between our friends, the people who know us, our coworkers, when they see that we are good people living peacefully and promoting peace, that's going to draw their attention, Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, we're not called to pay evil for evil. When people are evil towards us, we stand firmer and taller in knowing that our standards are in God. Right? Our standards are God's and, and Jesus's. It's not the world's. So you're right. I mean, there are. I mean, Haman. I mean, this is a great example of uh, an overly ambitious and selfish person going after a good man, and honestly, his, his entire people, right? Just for the fact that uh, that he didn't bow down to him, uh, because he was so full of himself and he was so blind with pride and ambition, he didn't even bat an eye in in thinking about murdering people, right? The first century Christianity saw the greatest rate of growth ever, right? I mean, Christianity obviously continued to grow throughout the centuries, but that first century Christians, I mean, they were strong. They were, they grew. But the funny thing is, the interesting thing, thing is, they saw the most persecution. Right? They were the most persecuted group of Christians out of all of history. Everyone hated them, misunderstood them. They were against them. They stuck out like sore thumbs in their cultures. And yet they grew the fastest, the quickest. And, and honestly, they were very, very, I think we can agree, they were very strong in, in their faith, in their conviction. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be Christians in their age. It's, it's those moments where where we are challenged, right? where we are facing opposition, and where we have to go against the grain of sorts, when we really find out whether or not our faith is really there. Right? Uh, there are, I, I think you, know, you can say that there are such things as weaker faith or stronger faith, but I think a lot of times it's either you have faith or you don't. Uh, you can say that you know you have a quote unquote weaker faith, but I don't know. Um, when we are challenged and when we are put to the test, that's when that's not a tragedy. We shouldn't look at that as tragedy. We should look at that as opportunities to stand up, step up, and to grow. And I think Esther had that moment in chapter four, right when 
I mean, she was obviously afraid. She was like, oh, you know, if you go to the king's courts without, without being called, without being summoned first, you're going to die. I mean, that's a certain death. You saw what happened to Queen Vashti just because she didn't show up because the king, or after the king told her to come. Uh, like, this is serious. This is the law of the land, right? And in Haman, uh, uh, or with Mordecai, Refusing to bow down to Haman, you see the consequences of that. You, now you got the all of Jewish people throughout the Empire of Persia. Now they're going to be exterminated just because one man stood up to Haman, this evil person in power. And yet, in those moments, they just continue, right? At, at this point, you know, uh, Mordecai and Esther does not just you know throw their hands up and say, you know what, maybe this whole God thing, maybe this is not it, you know. Uh, this is too much. See where, see where me standing up for God got me and my people. They didn't say that. They, they accepted the situation. Mordecai mourned, right? He fasted, he prayed, obviously, and, and, and he was destitute. But right after that, as soon as he was done with that, he got on to planning to save his people. And he started communicating to Esther. And he convinced Esther, he convicted Esther to rise up to the challenge. And Esther, in her own personal moment of fear and, and anxiety about going to the king's court without being summoned, and that meaning possible death, she says, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I will do this. Right? And they were rewarded, obviously. Or she was rewarded because she went in and the king's golden scepter was uh, stretched out to her and she was saved. And now she's in a position to be able to save the Jewish people. So my, my point in saying all this is uh, sometimes in our hostile culture, right, we, we kind of, you know, we're so beaten down. I mean, you just go on social media and look at what people are saying about Christians. Just go on social media and, and go on in like a post and go in a comment section about something, politics, I don't know, and, and say uh, something that's Christian, right, of Christian value. You're going to be torn apart. We know this. We have seen this over and over again in the past uh, few years or so, even longer. Uh, so we know what it is like to be in a hostile culture, having a belief or, or a set of beliefs or standards that are against the grain in our society. So in those moments where we're just so tired and exhausted and everything feels like it's like they're, you know, they're against us, it, it feels like sometimes it's pointless to live according to the standards of God. Um, and it is indeed a high standard. God's truth is not, you know, complicated. It's simple and it's profound, but it is not easy, right? Uh, so it can be difficult to, in those moments, love our enemies or make peace with those who have, who really will have nothing to do with us and all of these things. However, this is what allows us to be open to opportunities for us to, uh, touch the lives of others or to do something that is according to God's will that he would have us to do using us as instruments for his will. If Esther was not an upstanding, upright person who drew the attention of people, 
through her humility and meekness and good personality, she would not have become the queen as she did. If she wasn't a, a, a good queen, uh, somebody who is meek and, and humble and, and would, has won the favor of in the king's sight, if she hadn't done that, then she surely would have died when the king saw her standing in the inner courts without being summoned. And yet she didn't. She became the queen, and she won the favor of the king, and now she's here in this position to be able to save her people, all because she made those, those little personal choices, decisions, those little convictions in her life to be a good person, to be a, a God's people. Um, and in that identity, living up to the standard that came with it. And that gifted her with the opportunity to save her people. It wasn't her own power. It wasn't her own position. Remember, she wouldn't have even gotten that position if it wasn't for her characteristics that defined her as a person of God. So my question for us is, do we do that? Right? Are we peacemakers? Are we upright, upstanding citizens of God's kingdom where we draw the attention of others, not in a negative way, but in a positive way that gives us opportunities to serve God? And when the time comes when it is challenging, when it is hard, and when we are called to stand up for God, will we do so, like Esther did? <laughs> no, I don't know. If, I don't know if Mordecai would be on a Facebook. <laughs> to it um, as much, but you know, Haman goes back to his family and, and starts bragging about himself, and then he goes on to start talking about, oh man, this, this Mordecai guy, and he's like gossips and, and all that, and, and they, they plot these evil things, and, but like you said, Mordecai, not once, I don't, I don't even think he ever talks about Haman outside of uh, him talking to Esther about Haman's plan. He is not bothered by Haman or his evil deeds. He's just trotting along. He is, he's just consistent in his identity in God. He is not bothered or phased by what Haman is doing or what any of these evil people are doing. As long as he is right with God, he is all right. right? And I think that's a great attitude um, and a point to make about this um, as we think about you know, how can we relate to Mordecai, how can we relate to Esther, um, as they navigate in their lives uh, through this hostile culture um, as God's people. All right, um, I think that was the second bell. Thank you very much. Next week we'll look at chapter 6.